Now, the Acts of the Apostles is 28 chapters, as you well know, and obviously we're not going to be able to cover 28 chapters. So what we're going to get, particularly tonight, is just going to be an introduction, an overview, a look at Acts, and then uh, the remaining nights we'll start to move on through Chapter 1 and maybe into Chapter 2. So it's, it's just going to be a starter, just a, 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 a beginning of the Book of Acts, which is a wonderful book. Now, as you can see on the screen there, it says, it's not really the Acts of the Apostles. More appropriately, it's the Acts of Peter and Paul. Now, Philip and others do figure in the Acts, but it predominantly it's Peter and it's Paul that are the main players in the book of Acts. And it's really divided into two sections under these two brethren or these two men. Division one is Peter the fisherman. We know Peter was a fisherman, but he was to work as a fisher of men. Now, many of Peter's speeches, Acts chapter 2, for example, concerned the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's appropriate that this part one of the Acts should, be, should end with the story of Peter's release from prison, which is in Acts chapter 12 by an angel. And that's really an, uh, it's the end of his life, but it's, it's really like a new life. And so it's typical of the resurrection to a new life, typically at baptism and finally in the kingdom. And of course, in this first part of Acts, you've got lots of new converts coming into the truth, very large numbers through the work of Peter the fisherman and other brethren who are fishers of men. And so it's, it's this opening up of this work. Whereas the, the second part, Division 2 of Acts, is really the tent maker. There's a picture of Paul as he always worked with his own hands to, make, to support himself as a tent maker. And Paul travelled the world. He travelled the ecclesial world with building tents wherever he could. All of his letters, and there are his epistles and also in the Acts, concerns the vicissitudes of ecclesial life, the, the ups and downs, the problems of ecclesial life. And so this, this part two of, of the Acts of the Apostles ends with Paul's boat journey. And this is typical of the difficult journey of the household of faith throughout the ages. So we've just got divided into those two, two sections, which gives us an overall feeling for the book of Acts. But if we want to break the book down into a, uh, more detail, we've got this chart here. So from chapter one through to chapter eight, we've got it called Witnessing in Jerusalem. And we find there that the, the ecclesia became great, great and very powerful, very large numbers joined the ecclesia. We find the progress of the ecclesia. And the work went to the Jews and it was headed up mainly by Peter. And all that work, which went on for about two years, occurred in Jerusalem. Then witnessing out into Judea and Samaria from chapters 8 through to chapter 13, we call the expansion of the Ecclesia. And there it's the, the work that engages the Jews, now Samaritans and Gentiles. And this time Philip's introduced into the, the scene. So now we've got Peter and Philip and Paul the three of them working together. And this goes out to Judea and Samaria and covers a period of about 13 years. But then the end part of the book of Acts, chapters 13 through to chapter 28, witnessing to the ends of the earth, to the utmost parts of the earth. We've got Paul's three journeys, Paul's trials, and this is to the Gentiles. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And of course, Paul is the chief figure 
and it's gone to the uttermost part of the Roman habitable. And that was for a period of approximately 14 years. We can't be dogmatic about those dates, but that just gives us a bit of an overview of where we are in Acts. Now, what we're going to do is maybe just look at chapter one, maybe get through to the end of chapter two. We'll see it goes. So we're going to be mainly just dealing with Peter and the Jews and what happened in Jerusalem. So the Acts of the Apostles serves as a between the gospel narrative and the epistles. Acts describes the beginning of ecclesial life. So ecclesias are formed and it shows how ecclesias must be rooted and grounded and built upon the solid and foundation of the Old Testament scriptures. So wherever we go in Acts, we look at Peter's speeches, we look at Paul's speeches, they're drawing on the Old Testament scriptures all, to, all the time but they're, they're building the foundations of ecclesial life, which are built on, on actually on doctrines and principles. And Carter makes this observation. He says, it seems that before many days has passed, the apostles had a group of texts under different headings, which was the common property of all the teachers. Now he says that in relation to the book of Acts. He says that the, he makes the following observation. You have a statement of faith. In the book of Acts. It consists of a number of propositions and a display of proof texts in support of the propositions. It seems that this is what the early believers had, probably even before the gospel was written. They had bodies of testimony with quotations testifying to certain doctrines. Now if you have a look at that passage there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, you'll find that uh, this is on the, after the day of Pentecost, You'll find there these words from verse 41. Then they that were gladly, then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now that's a lot of people. 3,000. Of course, there's greater numbers right through the book of Acts. And verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So you notice that first point there, they continued steadfastly. In the apostles doctrine there was a set of doctrines and then come because on the basis of that doctrine and fellowship and then in breaking of bread and prayers so that it was based on the apostles doctrine the teachings of the apostles which was given to them from the lord jesus christ so we talk about the the, the apostles fellowship now there's a quotation from first john and i've got it on the screen here but it's i've got up the top of that it says that scriptural fellowship is joy the joy of mortal men and women in sharing common knowledge and purpose with the eternal father and his son to whom he has committed all power and authority so it's fellowship we're in fellowship with god with his son but we are also in fellowship with the apostles we get that from this quotation in first john it says that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship and you want you to notice that fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and these things we write unto you that your joy may be full so the fellowship that they had was with the with the apostles and, the, and we are still in fellowship even though they're dead but the doctrines that was the basis of that fellowship come from their teaching and that was the, the really the the foundation principle in the book of acts the doctrines that the apostles doctrines 
which came from the Lord Jesus Christ are really important to establish for, for the establishment of the ecclesias. So there was a statement of faith, if you like. Now today we do have a statement of faith, very much as they had in that first century ecclesia. And this is what Brother Carter says in the Unity book. He says, it is generally recognised that the essentials of saving, uh, saving us from sin and death are formulated in the BASF, which stands for the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith. We've got a statement of faith that was formulated in Birmingham, in the Birmingham Ecclesia, when Brother Roberts was there. It became an amended statement of faith when the doctrines were changed in relation to this responsibility question. And so we say it is recognised by all the central fellowship ecclesias throughout the world and most other fellowships also. Now, it's interesting. They've got lots of fellowships around the world, but they all accept the BASF basically as their, their basis of fellowship. And so Brother Carter goes on to say, he says, a statement of faith is essential for any community of believers to define their beliefs to ensure harmonious working together and consistent testimony to those without. To decry a statement as man-made and to speak of the Bible as alone sufficient reveals a marked failure to perceive problems of ecclesial life and its duties. Now we do find there are those people and even brethren who say, look, I don't need a statement of faith, I just need the Bible. Well, all the religions that claim to be Christians claim they have their teachings on the Bible. We have the, the statement of faith, which is the doctrines that the Bible teaches. It's a collation of the doctrines. And that's what the apostles had. They had a set of doctrines, which was the apostles' doctrines, based on the, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures. All sects of Christianism, Christendom, the Unity Book goes on to say, claim to base their beliefs on the Bible, a fact which in itself demonstrates the need for a statement of what we understand to be the teaching of the word of God. So all these different sects claim to have their beliefs on the Bible, but they're all different. And once Christadelphians start to stray away from Bible doctrine and the statement of faith, you'll find they'll end up different too. We need to keep on coming back to what happened in Acts. They had a statement of faith. They had, as it says there, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's what they did, and that's what we need to do today, to continue steadfastly in the doctrines of the truth. In fact, chapter 2 and i'm not going to go through this mentioning these on the screen in acts chapter 2 when peter gets up to give his speech on the day of pentecost he lists off all these prophetic and doctrinal issues he says that what you're seeing today is a fulfillment of bible prophecy which was joel chapter 2 being fulfilled psalm 110 he, he reinforces the principle of the mortality of man he says there is hope of life through resurrection. He teaches that Jesus did not pre-exist. He teaches that the Messiah is subordinate to the Father and that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is to return to reign on David's throne. All fundamental doctrines to our faith, and yet they're right there in the very early chapters here, chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Based on the fulfillment of prophecy, as I said, it was indicative of an approaching crisis that the days of AD 70 would be coming soon. There was a need for personal salvation as there is for the world and all of us today. And that Jesus Christ was the manifestation of God to Israel and that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ was sacrificial. 
All those things come out of Acts chapter 2. All important doctrines, all important prophecies, because prophecy is also an important pillar of the truth. And, and many Christadelphians can go astray on that also. So these things are, are, are very fundamental things, but they're important things that are in the very early chapters of Acts. I've got more. He rose from the dead, revealing the way of life. Once again, that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy demanded that he that rose from the dead should reign on David's throne. And prophecy requires that he should ascend into heaven until the time of his return. And that salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ. So coming back now to the, the history and the background of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we believe it was completed around about AD 60 to 70. Jerusalem is mentioned 60 times in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. The final mention is in uh, Acts chapter 28 and verse 17, where Paul was in his own hired house in Rome. But finally Jerusalem is met, but there's no mention of the horrors of the siege in AD 70. So we believe that it was written before the siege of AD 70. And so evidence seems to indicate that the book was completed around about AD 63. Now, the Acts of the Apostles is named given around about the middle of the second century, about AD 150. Originally, the book was known as the second volume of the history of Christian origins. The second volume. The first volume of that work is known as the Gospel of Luke. So Luke actually wrote the Acts of the Apostles and the, he, we, know, we know he wrote the Gospel to Luke. So the first volume was the Gospel of Luke and the second volume was the volume of history of Christian origins. Now we've got external evidence to indicate that Luke was the author of Acts. Eusebius, who was one of the historians of that time who wrote during the period of 265-340 uh, approximately, his historical writings cover that period from the first century right through to AD 324. He says in his work, Ecclesiastical History, Luke, by race a native of Antioch, and by profession a physician, having associated mainly with Paul, and having accompanied with the rest of the apostles less closely, has left us, left us examples of that he, healing of souls, which he acquired from them in the two inspired books, the gospel and the acts of the apostles. So Eusebius says Luke was the author of the gospel of Luke and the acts of the apostles. And that's accepted by most uh, Bible students today. Now, the acts of the apostles, strangely enough, has got a connection with the book of Chronicles. Now, if you just come right back to Chronicles, first book of Chronicles in your Bibles, Chronicles chapter 1, Chronicles chapter 1, as you can see on the screen there, the Chronicles Really, the word chronicles really means the words of the days or the words of the history or literally, when it's translated, the acts of the days. So the books of chronicles are really the Old Testament version of the Acts of the Apostles, if you like. This is the acts of the days. 
And the, the book of Chronicles is it's the conclusion of the Old Testament of the Hebrew canon of scripture. So the two books of Chronicles form one book in the Hebrew scriptures and are attributed, we believe possibly to Ezra, to one author like the Acts of the Apostles. Two books there attributed to one author. So it's just interesting, you've got this little bit, you've got more of a connection than that though. I've got on the chart on the screen now, you can see the, the Old Testament books, the way they are arranged in the Hebrew Bible. So you've got the law, the prophets, the writings, and right down the bottom of the writings there, you've got the historical books. And the last book of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Chronicles. Now, it's only one book. In our Bibles, it's divided up into First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. And it's the last book. Now, when Chronicles starts off here in chapter 1, it starts off with Adam. It says, Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, Adam, Sheth, Enos, and it goes on. And it goes through all the generations. So Chronicles is a record of the generations and it goes right through to the end and i think the next slide will take us there it takes us it leads us chronicles actually leads us right up to matthew chapter one where the genealogies are continued now chronicles ends with the kingdom of judah returning they've been in captivity and the kingdom of judah is returning i want you to come toward to the end now to second chronicles chapter 36 verse 23 which is the last chapter of the last book of the hebrew bible second chronicles 36 of course here in second chronicles 36 it talks about the jews have all returned they've spent the 70 years in captivity which jeremiah had prophesied then we read in verse 22 of of Chronicles 36 now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia that the word of Yahweh spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing saying thus saith Cyrus king of Persia all, all the kingdoms of the earth hath Yahweh Elohim of heaven given me and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Cyrus is, is saying, look, he's, he's been charged with the responsibility of building a house. And the Jews are permitted to return, as it were, to restore the kingdom of Judah. And the book of Acts is all about that. The books, the disciples actually ask the question, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Judah? The book of Chronicles is all about the Jews returning from Babylonian captivity. It says, to build him a house in Jerusalem. Who is there among you of all the people? Yahweh his God be with him and let him go up. So Cyrus says, well, who is there? Who is there of all your people? Let him. So he asked this question. And of course, many people did go up to Jerusalem, but it really narrows down to one person who this person is. This question in Chronicles, because it's the last book of the Hebrew Bible, now we go to the New Testament, is followed by the question in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2, where it says, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? So but Chronicles begins with the first Adam, leads right through all of Chronicles to Matthew, to the second Adam, to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So it connects to the book of Acts in the question of the disciples, as I said, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? It's to do with the restoration of the kingdom of Israel is asking, where is he? Of course, it's the Messiah. And the answer to who the Messiah is, is given to the Jews in the book of Acts. Where is he? They didn't accept him, but eventually Peter stood up and on that day of Pentecost, he was able to show from the scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ was that Messiah. So there's just this little interesting connection. There's the quotation there from Matthew chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem saying, where is he? Whereas Cyrus said, who is he? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we are come to worship him. So that's just a little bit of an interesting diversion that there's got this connection with Chronicles uh, and with the book of Acts. Now, when we come back, let's come back to the book of Acts. To, um, as we're coming back to the book of Acts, let's have a look in Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Luke chapter 1, we read these words. Verse 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed amongst us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me, now this is Luke speaking, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of the things wherein thou hast been instructed. So Luke is writing this gospel account, he's writing it to us, but he's writing, addressing it initially to Theophilus, that Theophilus might be instructed in all of the things concerning what they have, what the Lord Jesus Christ did and the things they saw and heard and there were witnesses that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Now, when we come across to Acts chapter 1, Luke says in Acts chapter 1, pretty much the same sort of thing. Well, he mentions Luke, the account that he writes in Luke. So in, in Acts chapter 1, we read the words, the former treatise. The word treatise is the word logos, which means a, an account in this instance. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, same person, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So he's saying, look, I'd written to you before, Theophilus about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. He says, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Spirit had been had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passions by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he goes on to now explain to Theophilus everything that's happened since the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended and records that in the book of Acts. Now, the question is, who is Theophilus? Now, I've got on the screen 
Theophilus was commissioned by Luke to record the facts concerning Jesus and his apostles. Well, probably we really don't know if he, was com he commissioned Luke to do that. But Luke wrote to him, but who is he? Who was Theophilus? Well, we don't really know for sure. His name means friend, Theo, Philio, two Greek words, Theo meaning God, Philio, affection or lover, a friend or a lover of God. It's the Gentile name of, of a type of Gentile being. I, I believe he represents all the Gentile believers and Jewish believers, but specifically the Gentile believers. He's referred to as most excellent Theophilus in Luke chapter 1. That was an official Roman title. So it seems that this Theophilus that this initially was written to was a Roman official and Luke had some connection with him and was able to write these two wonderful records, which are obviously inspired, that he might read them and understand them. But it's not just as we understand written to Theophilus, it's to everybody, to all who are the friends of God. And of course, that's us. All the Gentiles and the Jews, if they would listen, but to the Gentiles who are the friends of God. Now Luke. So Luke is attributed as being the author. Now his name means a white light. We understand from that he was a physician, he was a Gentile, he was financially independent, and that he possibly learnt the truth from Paul. Seems ministered medically to Paul's needs in their journeys. Luke was a man of learning and knowledge, and he was a keen observer and a faithful recorder of detail. And I'm going to show you an example of that in a minute, where he records things that other people, when they write in those days, didn't record. Now, Luke's name does not appear in the book of Acts, but the authorship of the Acts is attributed to him. Luke is shown by archaeology to have been correct, correct in the use of technical terms which he uses with reference to the rulers of various places visited by Paul. Other writers do not use these specific terms that he uses. Now, here's some examples. We, we won't turn these quotations up, but you can just see them on the screen. When they're in Philippi, Luke uses, the, in our King James Version of the Bible, it refers to magistrates. But Luke uses a specific word, which I'm not even going to pronounce for you, which you can see on the screen, which means captains. Now, the archaeologists have found that these words were very specific. Somebody who wrote this record was accurate. They accurately knew the things that were happening in Philippi. Philippi, you've got surgeons mentioned or sergeants. And there's the other Greek word there for it, which means those who bear the rod. Once again, Luke was very accurate in recording. No other gospel writers record this. Paul doesn't record it. Luke does. In Thessalonica, the rulers and their the politarches, or archies, politarches, they're the rulers of the city. And in Corinth, Gallio, he's referred to in the Bible as the deputy, but the correct translation of that is to act. He was an acting proconsul. He was acting in the position. And the archaeologists tell us that that was correct because two years later, the Romans put in a, a person who was known as a propraetor, and they used another word for him, and he was the vice general in Corinth. 
But Gallio was there right at the time that Luke records he was there, and archaeology has found that. On the island of Paphros, Sergius Paulus is referred to as the deputy, and the word really is a Roman proconsul, which was the word that Luke uses. So Luke has used very specific terms. Now we've got a, a Cyprian, which is from Cyprus, inscription with Gallio's name has been found, which harmonizes with the Acts record, and archaeology also reinforces the finds what was found in Corinth two years later. So Luke is very accurate, he's, he's a man of knowledge, he uses the right words, and it reinforces the fact that Luke, one of the ways that we can be assured that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Uh, he, Luke's only mentioned three other times in Paul's epistles. In Colossians chapter four, he's referred to as the beloved physician. In Philemon verse 24, He's listed there in company of the fellow labourers that were in the house of Philemon. That's where the, the Colossian Ecclesia met, and Luke was spending some time there. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul says that only Luke was left with him. Luke remained faithful right to the end. And we find that the terms we and us in Acts chapter 16 includes Luke as a companion along with Paul and Silas and Timothy. Just um, cross that passage in in um, Luke chapter in uh, Acts chapter sixteen. Acts chapter 16, we'll pick it up in, in verse 7 or in verse 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and for, were forbidden of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia but the spirit suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, and these are the words I've got on the screen, after he had seen the vision, immediately we, and when we read those words there, that's now Paul, the we is, and this is the first time this is used in the book of Acts, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were there with Paul before, but it's we. Luke is now the author. Luke is there with them. We endeavoured to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. That's Luke now. He's, this is a, he's mentioned with the group in the book of Acts. It goes on to say, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, 
heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us, and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. I missed that us there, but there's another us. Now, while we're here in Acts chapter 16, so there's Luke, but we read these words that in Acts chapter 16, verse 9, and a vision appeared unto Paul in the night. Now, it wasn't a dream. Paul had a vision. And when it says, there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed, saying, come over and help us. So when it says a man, and as you can see on the screen, I've got a certain man. This was a, a particular man. There is some suggestion that this man was known to Paul as a Macedonian, and possibly that man was Luke, who was a Philippi in Macedonia. He was over in Troas, but this man that Paul saw in a vision, it was an appeal that they now go over to help those in Macedonia. He says, come not and help us. It's an appeal. Help us. So in the vision, it's a man appealing to help us. So here on the map, we've got Paul takes his journey. He's now come up into the region, up into Asia, comes along this line here, comes down into Mysia. And it says they are saying to go back all the way back up into Bithynia, go all the way back up here. Now, the spirit would not permit them. God had resisted their God. And the purpose was that they should go across into Macedonia because there was much work to be done, many people to hear the truth. And, of course, so Paul was here in Troas, just here. He's, he sees this vision of a certain man. Now, we believe it possibly was Luke. And Luke, who came from this region over here, but happened to be in Troas, said, come over and help us. And so they pass over the sea, now the group, and now Luke, because he joined them in Troas, Luke goes over and they start the work in, in Philippi and come all the way down to Corinth, where there's a great work done in uh, the developing of the truth and establishing of Ecclesias. And I've, I've said all that on the screen. I've already told you all that. So it appears that Luke remained Paul's constant companion from the time of Paul's imprisonment at Rome until his death. We've already seen that passage briefly in 2 Timothy, where Paul says, only Luke is with me. And this brief statement reveals Luke was a greater and a loyal man of the truth than the scripture reveals. He stuck with Paul no matter what. He, he looked after him for his medical needs. He nurtured him. And throughout history, there have been many like Luke, men and women, who have remained faithful with dogged loyalty and determination. And those of us who have remained faithful and given conscientious support to others in so doing, stand, and those who have done that, stand as examples to us. Of course, it's an exhortation to us. We must remain faithful and stand for those who have been faithful to the truth, even in our age. Our pioneer brethren, uh, things are changing quite radically in the ecclesial world today. We need to be faithful to the service of the truth. Only Luke had remained with Paul. Might it be that we remain with those things 
that are the sure foundation for the truth in these last days, like Luke, Luke, and stay with Paul and stay with your apostolic teachings. Now, Luke's historical account diminishes the handicap promoted by the enemies of the truth. Now, what I mean there is this. The enemies of the truth tried to paint a bad picture of believers. Enemies of Christadelphians today try to paint a bad picture of Christadelphians. But in the first century, believers were held in good esteem in spite of the strife and disorder stirred up by Jewish authorities. It's, it's a, an important point that's in Acts. Now, I want you to join me, Luke's words once again, in Luke 23, verse 13. Of course, this is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 23 and verse 13. Now, this was, this was Pilate's attitude. Quite different to that of the chief priests. Luke 23 verse 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I have examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So, you know, Pilate and Herod said, we can't find a problem with this man. Now that theme runs through the book of Acts. I've got all those quotations on the screen there, and you'll recognise some of them. They all had a good uh, account. Have a look, for example, in Acts chapter 13 of Sergius Paulus. In Acts chapter 13, a good account of Paul, of the things that the, the brethren believed and the way they conducted their lives. Acts chapter 13 and verse 7. So Paul and his company, it says, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul, because Paul was still called Saul here, it's only a few verses later on that his name was changed, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Elamus, the sorcerer, tries to get in the way there, but in verse uh, 12 we read, then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Now, here's a man in high position who responded positively to the preaching and teaching of Paul and Barnabas. Now, you go through those other passages, the chief magistrates, Gallio, the Asiarchs. Now, the Asiarchs in Acts chapter 19 were men who were actually, men who were put in charge of pagan festivals and feasts in the Roman Empire. That's what an Asiarch was. And yet, it says that they were the friends of Paul. They treated Paul with respect. Felix and Festus, even though they sent him off to Rome eventually, that they could find no fault with him. Agrippa and Bernard, Bernice, the same. So Paul, and then of course, the end of Acts, as we know in chapter 28, Paul spends two hour whole years in his own hired house. So, you know, Christadelphians, if you like, are reported well. They're, they're given a good report. They're not shown to be in bad esteem 
they're shown, and the Apostle Paul is shown to be held in good esteem by people in authority, which is an important doctrine and principle for us today. We are to conduct our lives as much as is possible to live peaceably with all men. We're not to be obnoxious people uh, uh, painting ourselves. We're to be Christ-like. And as the scriptures say, if it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Or as Paul says in Timothy, moreover, he must be speaking about those who have a responsible position in the clergy. He must have a good report of them that are without lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So the apostles were good at We need to be the same. We need to conduct our lives that our neighbours, the people we interact with, the truth is not put to disrepute. We held it. We need to be faithful to the truth. And by doing that, we'll be held in good esteem, not friends of the world, but people who show what Christ's character is really like. And that's what the apostles were doing. They live peaceably with all men. Now, coming back to Acts chapter 1. The great commission for them in Acts chapter 1 and, and verse 8 is that they were to be witnesses unto Christ. Firstly, in Jerusalem. Then, as it says there, you shall be witnesses. You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So firstly Jerusalem, then out to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the Roman habitable. The word witnesses is the word, the Greek word, matures. Now we get the word martyr from that word. They were to be martyrs. The word signifies to bear testimony unto death. The apostles had to be a witnessing community, even if that responsibility was to bring them under trial and difficulty. And even though many of them were held under good esteem, Peter, for example, lost his life. Some of them were beaten. Some of them were put to death. And we need to be, today, the age in which we live, we're living at a very interesting time in the history of the world, the, the last days. And it's not part of this talk tonight, but uh, uh, we live in a, in a time uh, just before a time of trouble such as ever was since there was a nation. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. And at that time, Michael the great prince shall stand up for the children of thy people. We know those passages. We're living in a time when evil is going to come. Now, we may be, we may be affected by that and we'll have to witness for the truth. Uh, well, I want to look at a couple more passages in that vein. Now, the brethren were being told that they would have to witness and be prepared for that. So when they were told, you shall be witnesses unto me, the word of God was like a, a stone thrown into a pot. It would spread out like ripples from Jerusalem unto the uttermost parts of the world. And the power of the word, thoroughly understood and believed, transformed the thinking and morality of men and women in the thousands in those days and in the book of acts there's no pomp or impressive ceremonies luke simply records the way in which the word of god acted on the minds of men and women and it made a big impact in the book of acts we've got a number of parallels these are just interesting they don't teach any vital doctrines but they teach the principle 
that history seems to repeat itself as it did in Old Testament times, New Testament times. Here we've got parallels in Acts. In part one, we've got Jerusalem in the centre. In, in part two, we've got Antioch the centre. In part one, we've got Peter the chief figure. And in part two, we've got Paul the chief figure. We've got the word of God in part one going out to Samaria. And in part two, it goes out to Rome. We've got the, the word rejected by the Jews of the land. And in part two, it's rejected by the Jews of the diaspora. We've got Peter's imprisonment, and then we've got Paul's imprisonment, and we've got the judgment on Herod, and we've got the judgment on the Jews. And then we've got parallels between Peter and Paul, Peter's first address and Paul's first address. The lame man healed, and Paul heals the lame man. We've got the encounter with Simon the sorcerer, and then the encounter with Elymas the sorcerer. We've got the shadows influence and the handkerchief influence. Now, I want you to just have a look at this because this is an aversion, but it's worthwhile just having a little bit of a look at the shadows influence in Acts chapter 5 and verse 15. I must ask the chairman, what time am I supposed to finish? Can somebody tell me? Yeah, keep going. Keep going? Yep. Am I supposed to finish at nine o'clock or nine fifteen or you wind up where you think never? Okay, that's fine. Acts chapter five. In Acts chapter five and verse fifteen. Now we've got Peter here. And we read in verse fourteen, and the believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. I just want to think about that for a couple of minutes. The Catholic Church actually picks this verse up and says, well, you know, the Pope's got this power. People come under the Pope, just got to wave his hand and the shadow of Pope's, the Pope's hand can heal people. So the this observation is made. I don't believe the scriptures are saying that they were cured by the shadow of Peter. The superstitious people might have believed that they got on the shadow they were cured, but it required faith because we read on in verse 16, there came also multitudes out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folk and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now, I don't believe that they were all healed by the just passing in the shadow of Peter. They had to be affected. They had to have faith. The woman that came to the Lord Jesus Christ touched the head of his hem of his garment. He said to her, thy faith has saved thee. It's the power of God, but the power wasn't in the shadows. Now, we just need to then go over to the other incident in chapter 19, where it's the handkerchiefs. This is an unusual one also. In Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 19 and we read and God wrought verse 11 and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so now we're told that this was a special miracle now once again there was a need here for these special miracles by the hand of Paul so that from his body were brought under the sick 
handkerchiefs or aprons. Now, the handkerchief was a sweat cloth. An apron was an, a worker's apron that they would put around their waist. And diseases parted from them and the evil spirits went out from them. Why did God? Now, once again, I believe that the people had to come to the apostles, had to come to Paul in faith. They had to believe the word. They had to believe that they would be healed and trust in, in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it says in verse 13, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the, the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure thee by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons, one of one Sceva, a Jew, and of chief priests, which did so. So in other words, they were trying to practice magic. They were trying to say, well, we can cure people. We can remove these sicknesses from people. But the scriptures are saying, no, God gave special power in this instance to Paul, that if people just came to him and brought their handkerchiefs to him or their sweat cloth and they touched, they, they were associated with them, then they were healed. So I believe in this instance that was the case, but not in Acts chapter 5. Not the shadow would cure anything. But here it says there was a special miracle wrought and because of the circumstances. So it's just interesting to compare those those parallels. They're different, but they do line up as parallel situations in the, in the scriptures. Then we've got the laying on of hands in chapter 8 and then laying on of hands in chapter 19. Peter worshipped and Paul worshipped. We've got Tabitha raised and Eutychus raised and Peter imprisoned and Paul imprisoned in his own house there for two years. So you've got these interesting parallels between the two. One of the great teachings of the book of the Acts is one of the vision of the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ had spent 40 days with his uh, apostles after his resurrection and he was teaching them about the kingdom of God. So the theme of the kingdom of God is, appears all the time through the book of the Acts. For example, there would be severe judgments to come before the kingdom would be established. Just have a look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, by the way, we hope to give a much fuller exposition of this particular passage, which was a fulfillment on the day of Pentecost of Joel chapter 2. But we're looking at this now in the context of the kingdom of God. And on my servants, verse 18, and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and vapour of smoke, which is the days of AD 70. The sun, the ruling power shall be turned into darkness and the moon, the religious system, before the great and notable day of the Lord come before the kingdom, before the judgments, before the kingdom come, there would be this time of severe judgments. Then there was repentance required before the restitution of all things in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, where it says, 
Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, though the restitution of the kingdom of God that the, uh, the apostles asked about in chapter one. Belief in baptism was essential before the kingdom of God. Chapter eight and verse 12. So we read in chapter eight and verse 12, and when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. And in chapter 14 and verse 22, we've got would be through much tribulation confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of god and as i was just saying a couple of minutes ago before the kingdom comes to us there may be a time of trouble such as never was and that may affect us i'm happy to talk about that a little bit later if you want to Self-sacrifice is necessary for entry into the kingdom. Acts chapter 20 and complete dedication and identification with Christ in Acts chapter 28 is necessary before the kingdom of God. All important principles. Now here we are again, this quotation through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. So as you can see on the screen there, the word tribulation means anguish or persecution or trouble. Now, quite, to be quite honest, the age in which we've lived through so far has not really been one of anguish and burden and persecution. There have been, and as we can see on the bottom of the screen there, the quotation from Revelation chapter 7. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And he said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here's another reference in Revelation chapter 7 to all of those who have got the word of God sealed in their forehead, impressed into their minds, into their brains. They've come through great tribulation in the kingdom. Acts says it is through much tribulation. Will there be a time of tribulation for us? Now, I don't know for sure, but certainly we're living on the edge of that things could get a lot worse in the world and we need to be prepared to stand up for the truth because many brethren have down through the ages have lost everything. They've lost their lives and through much tribulation, they will enter the kingdom of God. And we're going to feel quite difficult talking to them if we've had an easy ride and maybe our tribulation is different, but it's an interesting quotation through much pressure or much tribulation. We must enter the kingdom of God.